Welcome to TGI, Tourism Geography Insights, the podcast of Tourism Geography's journal where we discuss our latest research and developments of our peer-reviewed journal which explores tourism and tourism-related areas of recreation and leisure studies from a geographic perspective. Kira Ora and welcome. I am Jeyeon Che, co-host of the Tourism Geographies podcast brought to you by the journal Tourism Geographies. Today, I'm speaking with Daniel Olsen, Professor of Geography at BYU in USA. Bula and welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate this opportunity. Thanks for joining us. So over the next 15 minutes, I'll be talking to Daniel about his recent work, Heritage Conservation and Community's Sense of Deprivation in Tourism, the case of the Hani community in Yunnan, China, published recently in uh, Tourism Geographies. I've been so fascinated by this research, by the way, Daniel. Thank you so much for um, this really interesting work. What, what question or problem was this paper or research setting out to understand? So one of the things that scholars who study tourism development agree upon is that the input of the local community is very important. They're the ones that feel the immediate and long-term impacts of tourism. As such, they are considered important, if not the most important tourism stakeholder. This is especially true if heritage tourism development is going to be sustainable in the, in the long term. But in many cases, the local community is considered to be homogeneous in that everyone is impacted the same way by tourism development and that they have the same views of what constitutes good and bad tourism development. Of course, the more involved community members are uh, in tourism, the more positive they view tourism development because they receive the direct benefits from tourism, particularly in terms of economics. However, the less involved community members are in tourism, the more irritated they can become with tourism development as they tend to see and experience some of the negative impacts of tourism, such as increased costs of living or congestion or the lack of access to recreational opportunities. In this paper, we were interested in looking at whether communities supported or did not support tourism development if they felt that they benefited or did not benefit from tourism. In this case, we were looking at do people who work in the tourism industry support and identify with the way in which local heritage is commodified for tourism consumption? But what about also the people who don't work in tourism? Do they also have that same sense of support when tourism interests come in and manipulate their heritage again for tourism consumption? In addition, we were interested in how community members that now live, that used to live outside the community and are returning to the community to work in tourism, if they support heritage tourism development in the same way as local people do. Do their perspectives differ on how tourism development and the commodification of heritage change? So these were some of the things that we were interested in looking at within the context of this paper. Well, really interesting. I cannot agree more that one side doesn't fit all, right? Then there are so many marginalized communities in, mm -hmm. in these tourism destinations don't really you know, receive the benefits. Right. Yeah, I can just, uh, there are just so many examples just running through my head right now. 
right? And can you briefly describe the background and context of the work, like where, when, who, etc.? Sure. Yeah. Uh, this research was done with some of my colleagues in China. They focused on the Hani community who live in and around the Hongxi Hani rice terraces, which is a world heritage site in China. The rice terraces were given world heritage status in 2013, in part because of the beautiful traditional agricultural landscapes that have been formed up the sides of hills. The Hani people account for about 70% of the people who live within this world heritage site. This was a good case study for us because the Hani people, because they live in the actual world, world heritage site, they are very restricted and what they can and cannot do in terms of their living conditions and the evolution of their culture, which means that they probably have some animosity at some level in terms of people coming in and telling them how they can and cannot live their lives. And so if this is the case where they feel disenfranchised or deprived of the, of the benefits of tourism, are they still looking at tourism development the same as those who work in tourism. The first author of the paper, Sunny, did the field work at this site between 2015 and 2017, and then did subsequent follow-ups over the past few years. My role in this paper was to help with the extensive editing uh, of English, as well as helping with the theory aspect of how this paper came together. Wow, really fascinating. I mean, Yunnan is actually in my bucket list to go. So this has been more, even even more interesting, especially about this this honey community. Um, we see these type of landscapes mm -hmm. in many places around the world mm -hmm. where you have to build vertically rather than horizontally mm -hmm. uh, just because of the, the physical topography. So there are many of these rice terraces that are beautiful. But for many years, a lot of photographers have come and specifically targeted this rice terrace because of its aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And the more pictures that got out there, the more people wanted to come. And eventually, people in governments said, maybe we should go for world heritage status. We get money, we get the prestige, and we can increase tourism development in our community. But really, it's the aesthetics, the landscape that draws people, not necessarily the culture but the landscapes that bring people to this destination yeah and we often don't think about how this would, would affect the local pe people you know it would uh, kind of restrict their behavior and, and lifestyle so something really we should consider as a tourist even yes yeah. and can you briefly describe the theory or concept that underpinned this work that's an interesting question. I didn't realize tourism, tourism scholars did theory. <laughs> I thought that tourism was a theoretical. I mean, just try to get a purely theoretical paper published these days. Mm -hmm. Won't happen. I'm being a little bit facetious here, but yeah. tourism tends to be seen as a theoretical. But yes, we did talk theory mm -hmm. uh, in this paper. We focused on the ideas of deprivation and gain. The idea of deprivation stems from relative deprivation theory, which was a social psychological theory that was introduced in the late 1940s. This theory posits that people who feel a sense of deprivation when they compare the situation they're in to others or their past condition and realize that they have less of what they believe themselves to be entitled to than those that they are comparing themselves towards. 
Now, in tourism development, with its capitalist and consumptive emphasis, yes, tourism does bring economic benefits to countries at different scales. Uh, however, low and uneven domestic incomes, severe economic, uh, sorry, sociocultural impacts, these things can lead host communities feeling a little bit deprived in that they're not benefiting the way they think they should be benefiting from the positive impacts of tourism as compared to other stakeholders. Now, scholars have suggested that there are three types of deprivation that people experience in the context of development. The first is horizontal deprivation, where a deprivation is found when comparing themselves to others in the same socioeconomic class. The second type of deprivation is vertical deprivation. And this occurs when a group compares themselves to other groups in different socioeconomic classes, either a, usually above them. The third type of deprivation is based on the concept of equity, where one group may feel they have been treated unfairly, or that the benefits in this case of tourism development were unevenly distri distributed to them as compared to the other horizontal or vertical socioeconomic groups. Now, if a group feels that they've been deprived of something in comparison to other groups, then they will probably experience some negative emotions and possibly protest regarding how they are treated and deprived of the gains that other groups are receiving. From a tourism perspective, a local community's sense of deprivation comes, can come from contact with tourists, where residents become aware of their impoverished state as compared to tourists, or when residents see tourists enjoying either specifically made tourism products or local recreational and tourism infrastructure, while the residents are not able able or allowed to enjoy the same products and infrastructure, or when they say those who work in the tourism industry have higher incomes and other economic benefits that they don't have access to. So by comparing your, your group with others in and outside of your community, residents who feel these forms of relative deprivation are more likely to either lose interest in actively participating in the tourism development process or actively resist these efforts, uh, in, in our case, looking at the development of local heritage for tourism consumption. This is kind of what we found in this study. For the most part, the Hani people living in the World Heritage Site felt economically deprived. Those Hani that worked in tourism received greater economic benefits as compared to those that did not. And this has led to some resentment in their community from a horizontal perspective. Now, interestingly, some of this is actually geographical. For example, Hani locals who live by the roadside where the tourists come in or the road that, that, that tourists drive through, they tend to be more engaged in the tourism industry. They open inns to tourists. And so they benefit much more from tourism because of their advantageous geographical location. This has then led villagers that live far from the main road or the entrance to the village to become deeply resentful. Also, the non-Hani who live in the area and work in tourism tend to do better economically than the Hani do. There is also a lot of economic leakage that takes place that leads to more resentments among local Hani. Interestingly enough, there are many Hani who, when they were younger, moved out of the site. They went to the urban areas, they got academic degrees, they were successful in business, and now they've returned back to the site to work in tourism. 
they tend to have more economic resources and thus they make more money from tourism. And this makes the local Hani who have always lived in the villages a little bit jealous. These, I guess we could call them diasporic Hani, also have more decision-making clout within the tourism industry, further causing conflict in the community. Another finding was that villagers are generally dissatisfied with the way in which the power structure in the villages has changed due to tourism development. The creation of this World Heritage Site was a top-down creation, wherein the residents didn't have much say and still do not have much say in how tourism works at the site. This has led to resentment because the Hani had been disempowered in the decision-making process. For example, many local Hani want to integrate modern farming techniques because it would just they would be able to have a bigger yield. But this would go against the heritage aspects of the site. People are coming to see the way agriculture used to be done and is still being doing. They don't want to see modern in scientific inventions being used to enhance and to change the way farming is done. This is the same thing with their homes. Local Hani are not allowed to change the front of their homes. They're not allowed to build new additions onto their homes because this would ruin the sense of authenticity. So what sometimes happens is that local Hani will say, I don't care. I want to add an addition to my home and they do it they get in trouble and are told to take that addition down, which again, leaves them feeling deprived. This is my home, this is my culture, and I'm being told what to do with my culture, what to do with my home. And all of this because of tourism development. I don't like this. And so not only will I not support tourism development, I will try and do things just to cause problems as a way of resisting against this relative depri deprivation that I feel. Thank you so much, Daniel. I think this study can be easily replicated in other parts of Asia. I can think of many cases, and I actually know several researchers doing kind of similar work in other countries like Vietnam and Indonesia, so they can use this concept maybe. But Daniel, I was very fascinated by what you said earlier how tourism research doesn't have you know use theories and concepts anymore that was actually very interesting and now tourism geographies we invite papers conceptual papers we have a new category now so that that might help that is helpful for scholars to know mm -hmm. it used to be that tourism was very conceptual mm -hmm. and it's almost flipped over on its side or to the other side of the pendulum where it's about the data. If you don't have data, real world data, who cares about theories and ideas? Because how do you apply theories and ideas to the real world if you don't have data? But there is something to be said about theory, mm -hmm. trying to understand linkages, why we see what we see. And since this is a tourism geographies journal, it is interesting that the discipline of geography kind of went through the same phases where it was about description it was about concepts, about why we see difference in the world. And then in the 1950s and 60s, geography became all empirical. It was all about the data. The magic number, of course, is 42, if you get the pop culture reference. And then things changed in the 1980s and 1990s, where now it's about human experience. It's not about the numbers. But then you can take human experience and numbers, but if you don't get some sort of overarching understanding of why we see what we see, the numbers are great, 
but useless. So there is something to be said about theory, and many scholars have argued that tourism doesn't do a good job with theory. That was basically my point, is that we can do better with theory, and we need to privilege theory just as much as we do the actual numbers that we gather when we, when we do our research. I think we really do, especially like young researchers, we are very busy collecting data and write paper and Mm -hmm. Just publish. We don't really think too much about, you know, how we know what we know, all these questions and theories. And that's kind of like not important anymore, you know, like, so that, that whole culture should change, I think. We should just, you know, develop more interest in more, you know, developing theories and learning about theories. From I, other I, ag I agree. Yeah. I think sometimes we think of theory as something we have to do in order to get to what we want to do. Yeah, like at the end, you know. Yeah, I have to do a literature review to see what people have said, mm -hmm. but a literature review is not theory. Right. And then I do the literature review to say, here's why my research is of value. Here's the gap. I'm going to gather a bunch of data and say, well, look at this great data I gathered. Yeah. Here's what I think it means. And then, oh, we should do more research on this. But how does it contribute back to theory? And again, why we see what we see. And I think that's a real problem when it comes to how we teach about research. It's not enough to say this person said this, this person said this, this person said this, no one has said this, so therefore I'm going to say this. <laughs> we have to move beyond that and think more broadly. How do all these, how do all the research we do interconnect with each other? That's where theory comes in. Without the theory, we just we just do these papers and they're just all separate from each other. What brings this body of knowledge that we call tourism together? That's where the theory comes in. That's what we don't do a very good job of doing. No, no. It's, I think it's getting worse, actually. I definitely want to make a really good conversation about this with you again, just focusing mm -hmm. on this. <laughs> um, so here's my last question. So okay. what are the key takeaways that listeners, listeners and readers of your paper should know? I think that a lot of scholars have looked at local communities as stakeholders. And they say, we need to really, we need to listen to them and pay attention to what they say. That's great as an idea. But I think our case study really shows that when you don't listen and you don't care, that people will feel deprived. They will feel resentment. I don't know of a lot of papers, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, or book chapters or whatever the medium is, uh, where they actually go in and talk to the stakeholders, talk to the local communities and say, what are you feeling? Not just, you know, oh, we... We're not happy because no one's listening, but why aren't they listening? What's the process? What, what is the resentment you feel? How, why do you feel disempowered? Why do you feel this way? And that's what we did. We went in and actually, and Sunny went in and spoke to them and said, give me your thoughts and feelings so I can share this with other people. I think we need to do more research on not just the importance of local communities as stakeholders, but how they feel empowered. What are the things that happen that make them feel disempowered? What are some of the things that we can do to empower them? In our case study, I don't have an answer to that because it's a top-down approach. You have several levels of governance 
that make it so that that basically force the Haughty people to do what we want you to do so we can keep up the image for tourists. Because if you start changing things, we lose our World Heritage Site. So there's a really strong top-down politics to this. I don't know how to fix that. Maybe that is the next step in this, is to say, now that we know how they're feeling, what can we do to make their voices heard? They're the subalterns that we need to focus on. If we talk about equity, if we talk about social justice, then the first step is to understand their pain and to understand what they're experiencing. And then what can we do to flip the script where it's a bottom-up, not a top-down approach? And most scholars would say bottom-up approach. That's great. Thank you so much, Daniel, for your time and really interesting talk. It has been my privilege to speak to you, Jalen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Daniel.